yeah, I watched that trailer and was like, fuck, they've laser targeted this at us. <laughs> you know, I wasn't really into that stuff, but I do like it. I liked like Cowboy Bebop and I just, it, it's not my genre, but when it's good, I love it. I'm, I'm a late comer to the stuff, but I have got fallen pretty like into it since like first watching Cowboy Bebop back in like. I don't know, five or six years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my whole thing is like I got into anime and all of like the late night television shit while watching it when it was at its most relevant. Right. And like when it was extremely highly curated, like a lot of people watch Cowboy Bebop and then they watch Samurai Champloo and then maybe Trigun or something. And then they start watching other anime and they're like, wow the rest of anime is a wasteland of dog shit. <laughs> and that's either that or you're like so hooked by the visuals that you don't care. And then like I watched a ton of anime to find like a few good ones like Psychopaths was okay. Um, there was one like called like, I don't remember, like fucking Demon's Gate or some you shit. You recommended that, was, that like, Planets show to me. Oh, that was really good. Planets, that is an excellent show. Yes, uh, not your typical anime, but a very, very good show. Um, and then Extremely like- Extremely chill vibes. It just, it's been so long since I saw anything that I was even felt like I was going to care about. I watched Kids on the Slope because that was Watanabe, and I thought it was as boring as it was beautiful. <laughs> and I stopped watching it halfway through. So I'm excited for Lazarus, is what I'm saying. This episode is brought to you by Adult Swim's Lazarus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't give us any money. We're just very excited. Yeah, we're just that age. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, folks. Welcome to your mid 30s podcast. <laughs> uh, but in reality favorite Adult Swim retrospective podcast. My name is John. <laughs> I'm Dan. <laughs> and I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported labor show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It goes a really long way towards keeping the show going. Uh, if you're not in the Discord already, hop in there. If you're a patron and you would like some stickers, message us on Patreon and I will get them to you my very self. Uh, if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think it will help. Yeah, and if you're uh, doing any of the Starbucks customer support rallies, protest type things, you know, share those things in the Discord as well, please. We'd love to mm -hmm. see it. Yeah, so we're starting off this week with an unfortunate follow-up. So just a couple of weeks ago, we covered the announcement of the union drive among staff at the LGBTQ dating app Grindr. Uh, workers had announced right out the gate majority support for affiliating with the CWA and requested voluntary recognition and, you know, had been been hopeful that they might receive it. Uh, unfortunately, there was a couple of weeks that went by with, like, just radio silence from management. Just nothing at all. Uh, just like, we've taken this under advisement. <laughs> like, like, basically just that, no comment at all. And then, unfortunately, this past week, we finally got a response from Grindr, which was basically uh, a declaration of war against all of their workers, <laughs> uh, which sucks. Because, basically, as reported by Josh Idelson for Bloomberg, on Friday, August 4th, Grindr gave its workers an ultimatum that they either commit to returning to the office in person in two weeks, no matter how far away from the office they live, or they can accept a severance package and be fired. 
Wow, this is so fucked up. I feel like uh, that the one of their things that they said that they were going to be fighting for was securing remote yes. work. Mm-hmm. Like that's like straight up. It is the most clear cut retaliation. They're like, "Hey, we're a union. We're organizing. This is one of the things we're organizing for." And then the company is like, "How about we uh, attack you right in that point that you brought up?" Yeah. And like the employees are absolutely seeing right through this. You hear from Jack Alto, a software engineer on the union's organizing committee who told Bloomberg, quote, I don't see any need for a digital product such as ours to require a physical presence, especially as we have worked so well remotely over the last three or so years. And it's hard to imagine that you would ever need to be in the same room to work on an app together. It is the... The example you would use if you were trying to think of a project that could be done remotely. Right. Like, I'm genuinely trying to think of what about the operations of Grindr needs to be done in a commercial office. And I'm like, uh, blanking. <laughs> yeah. Can't really come no, up with there anything. Isn't, there isn't anything. <laughs> I mean, actually, I just uh, went onto their website and looked it up. It's literally the first bullet point on their list. Yeah. And, and, and it, I mean, it makes sense because, you know, the... It's been totally fine for all of these workers at Grindr, about, I believe it's about 100 in the, in the bargaining unit, to work remotely. And that has, of course, then meant that they don't all have to be located in the same place. But now you have the company demanding that all the workers, no matter where they live, relocate to the company's offices in L.A., San Francisco, or Chicago. So if you live on the East Coast or in the Southeast, that's like, a, like thousands of miles. <laughs> and you have to uproot your whole family, your whole life. Like, you know, what if you have a spouse who has, like, a job there or you have kids? Like, I mean, that that could completely turn your life upside down. Yeah, they don't care about that. Yeah, and I mean, that's expressly the point of what they're doing. Because, I mean, uh, this announcement coming just two weeks after the announcement of the launch of the Union Drive, uh, Jack Alto, that same software engineer, also said that this is a, quote, coercive and dramatic measure intended to harm our unionization campaign, end quote. And it's like... Like, yeah, it's not even that they don't care. This is an incidental. This is an extremely pointed measure to to drive a wedge in the union campaign. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like the CWA did immediately file a ULP, as you know, the unions do against Grindr uh, for retaliating. Uh, on the social me- on on social media, the union stated, "quote The decision threatens the livelihoods of dozens of workers who do not live near their assigned team's office. Grinder management has a legal obligation under the National Labor Relations Act to not significantly change the working conditions of Grinder United CWA workers until after the workers win their union election and are able to directly negotiate on their labor conditions." End quote. And that is just standard uh status quo and they mm-hmm. literally are going so against that and i mean of course what would a company like this where would they get this notion from where would mm-hmm. they decide to have this uh, idea to retaliate against the workers of course it would be from the anti-worker crime syndicate littler mendelson which the company has hired to coordinate their campaign of terrorism against the grinder workers and so what we need here is we need the gays to rise up. Y'all need to 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 like I don't know tweet at fucking the grinder people and 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 you know get them to respect these fucking workers because this is unacceptable, just absolutely fucking unacceptable. 
Yeah, this this is this shit's terrible. And so you know, solidarity with the the workers at Grinder in your uh, fight against management bullshit. Uh, helped out by some of the worst people out there, Littler Mendelssohn. Um, but unfortunately, this is not the only story we have this week on the really ramping up war on remote work. Uh, in the United States, we've got uh, another story out of Google, who, of course, we only ever get gr- uh, good stories out of, <laughs> where, you know, in this rush of so many companies to both reassert dominance, but also uh, try and maintain those commercial real estate investments they made before the pandemic, we've seen so many companies attempt to force or entice, uh, you know, along a various spectrum of tactics to try to get their workers back into the office. And this is, of course, despite the fact that remote work is no less efficient than office work and for many positions can be more efficient, actually, and could, you know, if the company was maybe a bit far thinking, uh, save many companies millions in lower rent for smaller offices. But because this results in a loss of direct control over every second of the worker's day, that becomes unbearable for bosses, especially middle management. And so there has been a lot of you know screeching in the business press about the pandemic is over, back to the office, stop like having there's this uh, there's this you know portrayal of remote work as if people are living in a fantasy world, yeah. as if it's like. Perhaps the fantasy is the idea that these businesses that ran so well for three years completely remotely suddenly have to change the way they're operating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, un- and also, it's untenable how well everything's been going. <laughs> right. Yeah, like it's ridiculous. They've gotten massive amounts of profits. Like they've actually increased their profit levels over the pandemic. And yet still. No, they, yeah. they show up with their gunships and they say, open the office. <laughs> <laughs> Stop having it be closed. Well, but but Google is. It's I a will little say history of Japan joke. <laughs> they are at least uh, you know they're trying the carrot measure instead of the stick. Although it's kind of a weird carrot. Um, as reported by CNBC, Google is trying to quote make it easier for Googlers to transition to the hybrid workplace. End quote. Which I just got to say, calling your employees Googlers, don't do that. That's that's weird. No, that's uh, the people who use Google. Yeah, I'm the consumers. <laughs> yeah. the, the people whose data you steal are the Googlers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so the the offer that the company has made to the workers is that Google employees at the company's Mountain View campus, uh, they, they are being given the amazing chance to pay the company $99 a night, a discount rate to stay at a hotel on their campus. <laughs> And, and, and this is offered with an incredible sales pitch of, quote, just imagine, no commute to the office in the morning. And instead, you could have an extra hour of sleep and less friction. Next, you could walk out of your room and quickly grab a delicious breakfast or get a workout in before work starts, end quote. How is that any different from remote work? <laughs> what the Besides fuck is Besides it costing happening? $100 a night. <laughs> you want us to sleep at the office when we already sleep at the office, which is our house. And it works perfectly fine, and we don't have to pay anything except a mortgage or a rent or whatever we are already paying. I mean, if, like, imagine being on the Google board and not understanding why people aren't taking you up on this, too. And they're like, it's so stupid when workers say they can't find any rent, and yet they don't want to sleep at the office. It's like saying you're hungry when there's a hot dog on the ground outside. 
<laughs> because well, and that's literally the argument that many people, like the management managers at Google, have made. They're like, we have, you know, we've heard the concerns of so many of our workers about the high rates of rent in the areas around our offices. So we've decided to offer this wonderful discount option of you can pay the company you work for to live at a hotel that is basically a pod uh, connected to your office. <laughs> and also ninety nine dollars a night. That's three thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. That- that's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, you can't afford the $2,000 a month uh, one-bedroom shack apartments outside, you know, the, the Mountain View campus? Why not pay $3,000 a month for a pod? You can walk <laughs> to work. What, what, what the fuck are you even offering here? <laughs> They're, they can't do it for free because then they'd be doing company housing and it starts to turn into a company town. And which, also, Which it you already know, the- is. Google owns the hotel. <laughs> yeah. Well, then if that's the case, they could do it for free. And even then it would be fucked up. Yeah. And and so, you know, I mean, many workers have pushed back against these attempts to force them back into the office for no reason other than the desire of management for draconian control. Uh, and, and, you know, the things that people have pointed out is that like a hotel is not a solution <laughs> to the housing crisis, even if it was, even if it was free, even if it was a, a, a rate that was actually competitive, with the housing, it's like if Google was actually serious about being concerned about the 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 housing crisis, uh, you could offer subsidies for rent for your workers instead of asking them to pay their rent to you or <laughs> at a hotel. And here's the really insane thing you could do. I know this is nuts. You could just let them work from home and pay them significantly more mm. for the same work. I know this is going to be tough to swallow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, this sucks. And uh, people should continue to to keep up this fight because there's no real reason why everyone has to be forced back into the fucking office. Yeah, there's absolutely. hardly even a fake reason to be honest. That yeah, absolutely. Well, let's stay on the internet for right now and uh, t- t- <laughs> talk about the TCG Player Union. Back in March, we covered the them organizing and winning their election in the online marketplace known as eBay, which you know their particular area of that is in trading cards, as TCG Player might suggest. These workers joined CWA Local 1123 and became the first organized union workers at eBay. Unfortunately, but also not unexpectedly, the company has refused to recognize the union and continued to fight against the workers' rights its entire time of existence. Uh, Brianna Thomas, a member of the Workers' Organizing Committee, told The Verge, quote, They have refused to give us our rights to status quo, our wine garden rights. They refuse to recognize us as a union. They refuse to acknowledge the fact that the union has been certified, even if we present them with certification. So they are just continuing to make all these changes and refusing to work with us and refusing to follow their legal right to sit down or their legal responsibility to sit down and bargain with us at the table, end quote. And uh, just like straight up not acknowledging the union at all is like a very, for one, Amazon tactic, but also like, how do you, there's, hey, this is my certification. I'm showing you. Nope. Nope. This just reminds me, one time we handed a petition, we tried to hand a petition to our boss, and he made us put it on the desk. He's like, I can't touch it. I can't look at it. I can't. (laughs) It's so childish. Like, come on. (laughs) Like, grow up. Like, it's like like TV 
uh, dads trying to duck a summons or yeah, something, yeah. and they go through all like the wacky antics to run away from like what are they called? Server processor, yeah, process process servers. servers. Yeah, yeah. and but, also, but but before we move on, sidebar local one one two three. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but that's the first first four digits of the Fibonacci sequence, which is pretty cool. <laughs> well, I mean, interesting. It might be. Uh, but. I will say, if folks are thinking, hmm, being extremely aggressively anti-union, refusing to even acknowledge the union exists, that sounds familiar. You'd be right. And once again, we've seen a major company hire the country's most notorious pit of anti-union vipers, Littler Mendelssohn. We've oh already God, mentioned he said the line. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're not even out of the follow-ups, and these motherfuckers are already in two stories. Uh, and it's once again coordinating, you know, some of the more vicious and openly lawless sorts of anti-union campaigns like this, just refusing to acknowledge not just the union's like own presence, but the fact that the NLRB has already certified the union. <laughs> like, so you're not even you, you, they're like not just gaslighting their own workers, but like the federal government. <laughs> so. Well, uh, I also want to point out that, like, okay, so th- we've seen this tactic recently, but I, I mean, maybe I am just thinking of when I had to deal with Littler Mendelssohn, but this was not a tactic back in, like, 2016 so much, and I really think that the big showing of worker power has made them double down on being anti-worker in these more extreme ways as well. Yeah, probably. I mean, thinking they need to ramp up the intimidation factor, I guess. Uh, but, and, and, you know, they haven't just failed to recognize the union. The company has surveilled and interrogated workers, harassed anyone wearing union paraphernalia, forced workers to attend captive audience meetings, and fired one worker in retaliation for organizing, according to the numerous complaints from the CWA. They're still um, doing captive audience meetings after the certification of the election? No, I believe that, I believe that was before. I mean, maybe they still are. I, I was not clear in the story. Because if, I mean, if they haven't certified it, they might be trying to force, you know, like a decertification and continue discontent. Just, you know. Well, yeah, well, I, I have to imagine once the certification is something they're trying to ignore, they might avoid getting everyone together in one room for a while. <laughs> well, but but to your to your point, Lena, that is actually what they're doing. They are in addition to ignoring the certification, they have filed a legal appeal against basically every aspect of the union vote, despite, again, the fact that the NLRB has already certified it as good. And who they are appealing to is the NLRB, who are not going to rule against themselves. So they are going into this with the full awareness that they are going to lose this appeal, but they are doing it anyway in order to drag out things and demoralize workers to try and force people to quit with the hopes of decertifying the union after a year-long, you know, campaign of terrorism against them. And meanwhile, probably spending two, three, four, five times the amount of money it would take to just give these workers what they're asking for, for the foreseeable future. Right. Yeah. And and I think just one of the things that I think is is so important to underline, like, with this, which is that, like, this is why we can't rely on the legal system, like for for our unions, and it's it's why you know like things like uh, strikes for control of the shop floor are so important because like ultimately the only per- people capable of upholding labor law are workers themselves. Mm-hmm. Only trust your fists. Police will never help you, <laughs> except fists is like everybody's fists. Like only that, trust your friends. Is, yeah. Isn't that the Street Fighter meme? 
Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I think it's Streets of Rage. Streets, oh, of, Streets Rage. of Rage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. With, with the epic uh, uh, genre-spanning de- and multiple genre-defining soundtrack. Yeah. So s- speaking of Streets of Rage, Vancouver, True. Canada. <laughs> That's always what I think about. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been following the kind of, I guess, on-again, off-again, intermittent strike uh, by ILWU workers uh, on Canada's West Coast ports for the last month where they've been fighting for fair pay and benefits during the cost of living crisis. And as well, you know, fighting to maintain control over the deployment of technology and automation in their jobs, understanding that it's like the union is not really going to be able to stop new technology, but the workers should have a say in how that technology is deployed. That's one of the things that the ILWU has long fought for. And so this weekend, we finally came to an actual definitive end to the strike after several rejections of, of inadequate tentative agreements where workers ratified the latest contract offer from the shipping companies ending the dispute. Uh, on Friday evening, August 4th, ILWU Canada announced that just under 75% of the workers had voted in favor of the new deal. And unfortunately, I don't really have any details of the contract since this just happened and, and IL, the ILWU is far more focused on informing their members than they are inform- about informing the public about this stuff. Uh, so, which is fine. That I'm not, not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, but so there's not a lot of us for, for us to go over on the deal. However, I do think that there is some inferences we can draw from the fact that it was a 75%, you know, approval instead of say a 90 or 95% approval. And the thing that I, I just want to point out about this, cause most, there's not a lot of details about this new contract, but it highlights something that, you know, it's been a theme on the show, but something that I think is very important to point out, which is just how heavily involved the state is in so many of these strikes, because, uh, you know, a, a, we can't deny the impact on, you know, uh, workers striking on the government threatening to come in and shut that strike down, which is exactly what Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau threatened to do a couple of weeks ago when the workers first voted down an inadequate tentative agreement. There were discussions about back-to-work legislation, very similar to how President Biden, uh, you know, forced the railway workers not to be able to strike. And so, with that threat looming over the union, I, I mean, that can't help but influence things. And it's, I think it's just so important to underline, like the state is not ever on our side in these things. And, and the, that role is so important to recognize because when you have a really powerful and well-united union like the ILWU, that's gonna, like, you're gonna see a significant response from the state, and that's, like, a big part of why we need to build, you know, cross-union alliances and, like, full mass movements around these things because, like, we're not just up against the bosses. Like, they have the state machine behind them, too. So, like, you know, it's hard to really comment on the specifics of the deal, but, I mean, I think we can assume that it is, it is, is significantly better than the previous two that were shot down, but likely not, you know, quite as far as, as a decent chunk, you know, 25% of the workers would have hoped that it would have gone. And perhaps it would have gone a little better had Justin Trudeau and the Canadian state not moved in to put their thumb on the scale. Sure. Yeah. Assholes. I, well, and like so many situations that we've seen, like there just has been 
a real emphasis on figuring out how to set hard caps on what workers can win in their Mm -hmm. contract negotiations, because I think the various elements of the ruling class have taken notice that like workers are after COVID and a number of other factors starting to become considerably more militant on aggregate (laughs) than they were before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, I think that that actually segues nicely into our next story where we get to talk about Burgerville uh, workers where we have covered that uh, back in 2021, they had uh, unionized as one of the first fast food chains in the United States. And, I mean, they affiliated with the IWW, which was also a pretty big deal. And, uh, I mean, that that rocked. Oh, yeah. But, unfortunately, recently, they have come under fire from the company's new management, who took over just after that union election uh, win in 2021. During the contract bargaining process, the company has shifted tactics to be far more confrontational. They've refused to accept workers' proposal for low cost bar- for a low-cost bargaining venue and instead demand that the union cover costs to rent a pricey hotel conference room and then largely refuse to bargain in good faith, drawing out the process, making those, you know, uh, costs of having that venue even higher. And, I mean, this is likely because it is a slightly smaller union like the IWW who probably does have limited funds because they think because like sure a company is going to try to draw the funds out of a union regardless but it is a bit more of an effective tactic against a union that you know needs that money a little bit more. In a statement, the union said, quote, As of recently, the employer has refused to attend bargaining, disciplined every member of the union bargaining team, and has only offered a single counterproposal that would reduce workers' rights on the job, end quote. In response, the workers launched a strike at the company's Lloyd's location in Portland on Friday, July 28th, to compel the company to stop its antagonistic attacks on the union. The company immediately retaliated, firing one worker for striking— and moving to lock out all of the workers. God damn. Yeah, this this sucks. Like but like cuz that was one of the things that was actually pretty cool about like the story of the Burgerville workers win. Not that the ownership were like all friendly to everybody and like it was a wonderful capital and labor coming together bullshit or anything like that. But they weren't launching, you know, your Littler Mendelssohn style scorched earth war on the workers. Which, unfortunately, now, a year and a half later, the new management appears to be doing, uh, which really fucking sucks. Because <laughs> one of the things that was so cool about that win at Burgerville is because there were some really huge gains that the workers made. So, like, fighting here is not just, you know, for principle, like it, which is would be fine as well, but, like, there's a lot of material gains that were won by winning their union that these workers are really defending things like, you know, consistent schedules weeks in advance and, you know, higher wages and actually decent health care. <laughs> so like, you know, the workers have a lot to fight for here. And I think that that's shown in their tactics because the company has tried to bring in replacements from other locations by not telling those workers that there was a strike, uh, which in the age of social media did not really work. <laughs> Uh, So picketing union members uh, posted on social media about successfully convincing multiple workers who were brought in to act as scabs to instead turn around and stand with the strike. Uh, Much like some, you know, we talked about some of those workers who were called in to work at the hotels that have been struck in L.A. have done the same. 
and the union has also already filed eight ULPs against Burgerville this year, and that number seems very likely to climb. And they have specifically asked supporters to donate to their defense fund to help those who have faced retaliation for their organizing activities and for other locals in the Portland area. Like, so if you, you know, if you happen to live in, in Portland, to join them on the picket lines and just show the support that the community has for the workers there. So we'll, we'll definitely put that, um, that support fund link in our notes and definitely, you know, encourage, encourage folks to, to donate to that if they can, because, you know, getting that union foothold in fast food was a huge win. And, and, and the more that we can do as to help out our fellow workers here, you know, I think that's only going to help all of us in the long run. Well, and yeah. especially when they're being so pointedly targeted like this, where, I mean, it's a deranged level of pettiness to, to be like, oh, no, we can't all meet up in a normal conference room. It has to be at the fucking local Ritz-Carlton or whatever. Yeah. They, could, they could fucking get a spot at the library. Like, mm-hmm. that. there's so many other options, but no, of course not. You're all welcome to come and have your uh, 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 contract negotiations in my backyard if you need to. I will charge you nothing. <laughs> I'll make <you> dinner. <laughs> you could use one of John's many sheds. I have a lot of sheds. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, another story that, I mean, we've been trying to keep people informed on what's been going on in South Korea. And again, as we've seen, you know, the truck drivers, the port workers, nurses and doctors striking and protesting by the thousands against the anti-worker Yoon government in South Korea. And this last weekend, they were joined by teachers as well. Yeah. So on July 29th, as many as 30,000 teachers, and I say as many as because in every one of these protests, the police always put out a lower number than the union. Uh, so I'm a lot more likely to believe the union number, so we're going to go with 30,000. Uh, you know, that many teachers rallied in downtown Seoul uh, in the last weekend of July against the crushing working conditions that they face. And so in addition to joining, you know, the broader KCTU-led struggle to unite the labor movement in self-defense against these anti-worker policies of the government, the teachers also have very specific challenges that they're facing as well, that this was primarily what this rally was to highlight. And many of those who came to the rally were driven to speak out after a young first grade teacher tragically took her own life after the immense strain and pressure that she was put under at work. Because teachers say that they are provided no protections whatsoever against spurious complaints made by parents and that the administration continuously throws them under the bus. And I mean, like explaining what that means, uh, an elementary school teacher in Seoul told uh, the progressive outlet uh, Hank Yore, quote, Teachers can always be reported by their students' parents. It's very much like a traffic accident. There's nowhere to turn for help once complaints are filed against you, and the Ministry of Education always sides with the parents. I find myself thinking about how I wish I could quit soon, end quote. That is not a position you want teachers in, where they feel like they need to quit because they're being harassed by parents and, you know, for whatever reasons. Yeah, I mean... uh unconfirmed reports to that same progressive newspaper did indicate that the teacher who took her own life had been harassed personally for weeks by parents who had managed to acquire her personal cell phone number to accost her outside of work hours, which is apparently not uncommon in South Korea. As one former teacher told outlet Korea Pro, quote, parents would call me even after 10 p.m. asking about their children's progress. The inability to decline these calls led to immense stress, said Cho Gil Nam, a former teacher who retired in 2021. 
So in addition to the wider block of demands for protecting rights of workers, the protesters called for a teacher's bill of rights to protect teachers from such harassment. And I mean, this is something that we see in a lot of different industries where they're really, really trying to erode the amount of time you can spend not just away from work, but meaningfully away from work. I mean, this is like the horrible extension of when your boss is mad that you didn't look at an email at 7.30 p.m. last night. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly, because that's the thing. It's like, basically, the from from reading some of the, the articles explaining this, like, it, 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 it essentially has put these teachers in the position where any parent of any student in their class basically has the ability to act as their boss, sending them emails and calls and texts and stuff after work hours, and that they're literally not allowed to ignore them. Yeah, they- and, if, and if Korean schools are anything like ours, that might be 25, 30, 35, 40 sets of parents, mm-hmm. depending on their class sizes. Yeah, and, and so, you know, obviously we've we've talked a lot on this show about the horrible conditions faced by teachers in this country for various reasons, both obviously, you know, we have all the just ridiculous reactionaries attacking teachers for existing, for teaching even just milk toast centrist versions of reality that aren't even necessarily as progressive as they should be. And, and but also, I mean, this is one of, one of those things where you have teachers portrayed as, as if they are like a 24 seven kiosk, that is supposed to be at the beck and call of their customers, which is another one of those things about education under capitalism that is so frustrating is it treats it as a, as a like customer service model rather than a, an actual like community organization, which is what education really is or should be. Well, and even just from a, a, a strictly like technical standpoint, you don't hire the teacher the teacher is there because they know more than you about how to educate a child. And as a result, you're not in charge of that education process. If you want to be in charge of that, you have to figure out a way to educate your child at home, which I still don't, I personally don't like. Yeah, yeah, it, it, <laughs> I think that this is just so I, I'm having a hard time, like even like staying like level on this because honestly to be harassed that much and then to have that like go on i'm guessing they're getting the the, like rep like reprimands Mm -hmm. because of these these uh it's like you don't answer some parent at 10 p.m and suddenly your boss your the superintendent of the school is like hey i gotta write you up now or something like that that's like that's a fucking horrible horrible set of conditions yeah, like it is it's functionally making it like so, oh, you're a teacher and also you are on call at all times no matter what what. Like that's horrible. Like that's just an untenable situation as I mean as the tragic death well, of this this young and if, woman. Again, if they're anything like US schools, then those teachers are not getting paid for that time either. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely not. No. Yeah, no way. Um No, I mean it's this is also and you know this is one of those things that's very frustrating because we don't want to be like, oh yeah, the ruling class, parents, <laughs> because obviously many, you know, parents are across all classes. Parents every- are not awful it's because like a- of their class position. It's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, I think it's like a, a like almost like they're they're culturally taught that they should have that power to boss people around. Yeah, correct. Well, well and I, I also think a lot of where this comes from, and I think where we see a lot of those parallels between South Korea and the United States. Is that is the way education is treated as this panacea? 
it's it, it it's used as a tool to hide class contradictions because it, that's part of the reason we get constantly told the way up and out is education go to college go to college go to college that's how you get in the middle class and if you, and it's it's all a meritocracy you know the the smartest people are able to go to school and 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 they get the big paying jobs blah 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 which is of course all bullshit like that, that is a that is a psychological warfare campaign that has been designed to make you not mad at the people who have actually robbed your children of opportunities uh, by you know completely dominating the entire economy and society, the ruling class. And so in these societies, a lot of parents divert their anxieties, the totally understandable ones about providing for their children's future from the actual culprit for what has put them in that precarious position in the first place, the capitalist class and its state. Instead, they divert that onto the most visible workers who are involved in that system, the teachers, and so you end up in these awful situations of people just being harassed to the point where they can't take it anymore. And so this is really tragic. And, and I'm glad to see, you know, the workers standing up, tens of thousands coming to fight to change these things and not just accept that, that this is how things have to be, but uniting with the rest of the labor movement to fight to actually make this a, a just system where it's an actual job, where the workers are able to have a real work-life balance. Hell yeah. yeah. Well, as long as we're talking about workers really accomplishing some shit around the world, let's talk about Nigeria. So West Africa has actually managed to enter the mainstream news in the U.S. quite a bit lately, but we are not here to talk about the coups, uh, seven of which have happened over the last three to four years, nor the imperialism and geopolitics of the region. We're here to talk workers and West African healthcare workers are fighting against cripplingly low pay and austerity policies. So on Wednesday, July 26th, doctors went on indefinite strike across Nigeria, which is Africa's largest country by population. The Doctors Union, the National Association of Resident Doctors, or NARD for short, which I am going to refrain from laughing at, launched the strike after the country's president, Bola Tinubu, announced he would end subsidization of fuel prices, cutting, in the, cutting into the living standards of millions of workers. This move came at the urging of Western imperialists materialists demanding any restrictions on profiteering be removed. And it's kind of interesting because we did say we weren't going to talk about the coups, but it does also seem like the U.S.'s <laughs> renewed interest in the region might be a huge motivating factor for this decision. So just say. <laughs> oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, any of these austerity politi- policies like... Yes, of course. You know, there's class interests behind them with mm-hmm. the, you know, indigenous uh, bourgeoisie in any, in any of these countries. But, you know, with countries that have been dominated in a neo-colonial fashion Mm -hmm. the primary groups pushing these things are always like the imf and the united states yeah there's it's a rotating cast of u.s uk france for the most part yeah yeah. (laughs) well and in west africa mostly just france mostly just france but also (laughs) also the united states at the same time (laughs) well yeah uh but and so NARD, you know, the, the National Association of Resident Director or Resident Doctors, they represent about a third of Nigerian doctors, and they have struck repeatedly, uh, not just over the past months, over the past years, for better conditions. I, I've actually, this is 
I've seen a lot of different stories come across our like newsfeed about Nigerian doctor strikes, and I kept thinking they were just old stories. I was like, no, these are different strikes. <laughs> there have been a lot of these because of the abysmal conditions for these workers. They, they say that because of how bad things are for doctors in Nigeria, that an average of 200 doctors have been leaving the country every month for the last two years. So that's a great like way that, to have a good healthcare system. I tell you what. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So that's basically like in the last two years alone, they have lost 5,000 doctors, uh, which is the equivalent of losing 5% of the entire country's medical force every year. And, They've left in droves seeking better pay and working conditions ab abroad due to the abysmally low pay that they are able to get at home and chronic understaffing, which creates a spiral where the state leaves these positions vacant, which creates more work for the remaining doctors, which only encourages more of them to emigrate because of how untenable the situation is, and then it just gets worse. And, and so uh, Dr. Emeka Orji, who's the, the president of, of NARD, said in a statement, quote, we are having a massive brain drain in the health sector. It has never been this bad, end quote. Wow, that's fucking awful. Yeah, and, and, and this is one of those things that, you know, I mean, not to go, I guess, veer a bit off topic here, but like, when we talk about the impacts of things like Western sanctions on Russia, like everybody wants, no, we have to do this for the war, except who is really being hurt by them? Not really so much Russia. Their economy is actually doing okay. But what that has done is it meant that any of the countries that buy grain from Russia or buy anything else have to either choose to side with the U.S. imperialists and not buy it and then buy like U.S. grain for three or four times the price, which then leads to potentially famine, or they have to do it and then they get more pressure from the imperialist bloc and they end up having to pay more because of all the sanctions forcing them to use, you know, different means to go around the normal payment systems. Well, if everybody and, and would just bomb the countries we wanted to bomb and use the petrodollar, wouldn't it all be fine? <laughs> Yeah, but because that's one of those things. It's like there's all of these, you know, what the U.S. would probably term collateral damage, mm -hmm. you know, to all these sanctions regimes. And it's like all these people who have nothing to do with the conflict that end up getting hurt by it. And yeah, just for having normal international relations with other sovereign countries. Yeah. And, and when you combine that with the neo-colonial uh, mismanagement of these various austerity, you know, regimes that have been put in place, largely imposed by the IMF, you create this just perfect storm of awful conditions. And as the AP reported, uh, Nigeria's medical association says the country can only provide two doctors for every 10,000 people, which is one of the worst ratios in the world. Nigerian doctors have not seen a real raise in their wages in almost 15 years. And in that time, the country's currency has depreciated nearly 500%. And uh, resident doctors are now making between 500 and 900 US dollars per month. And the, this is in a publicly funded health sector that just continues to be underfunded by Nigeria's capitalist government with some doctors who are, this blew me away, who are owed a staggering 24 months of back wages that have not been paid. Two years. So not only are they being paid less than $1,000 a month for one of the most important like positions 
in any uh, like in any society, but also they are just straight up not paid for up to mm-hmm. two years. Yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely no fucking wonder they're on strike, and it really makes you a little bit more sympathetic to the people who were just like, you know what, fuck this, I'm just leaving the country because I can't even imagine. Yeah. I, we, you talk about like critical workers literally who is more necessary than medical professionals i I, there's almost nobody right and and that's one of the things that makes seeing the response from the government to this just so infuriating to me because like the government of nigeria and very various media outlets have demonized the doctors as quote abandoning their patients, which is the biggest lie you could possibly say, because not only are they not abandoning their patients, some of these people work for two years without being paid, and you are telling me they are abandoning their patients? The people who abandoned Nigeria's medical patients are the fucking government who refuses to pay doctors. Like, that is where the problem stems from. And, you know, you can broaden it out, and it also stems from French and U.S. imperialism, for sure, of course, but, like, it it and no one nowhere in here have the doctors done anything wrong it is the state's fault for refusing to fund this system and continuing to fund other projects you know like military escapades and joint ventures with the united states and all the money that's spent on the the oil industry and all these other things you know this is this is nothing to do with the doctors and yet they are the people who are demonized and it is just it's it's infuriating so like this is, it's it basically, it is ultimately just that this country has money. Like Nigeria, is, like, has a lot of wealth. Now, granted, a lot of it is extracted imperialistically. So France and the United States play a big role here for sure. But the, the government absolutely could, you know, take steps to address that by, you know, nationalizing various industries or doing import export substitutions and protecting the growth of the national economy there are a million different things they could do they could tax rich nigerians like there there are many different things that the government could do especially you know as the, one of the largest oil producers in africa but they just refuse to do so and so like that's exactly why nigeria's national labor council has has called for you know workers to actually prioritize the development of their own country instead of the the riches of their imperialist backers and and that's why think you know you have the Nigerian labor council calling for the devoting the country's rich oil resources not to send it out on the market to lower prices you know for american or european consumers but to keep it at home to subsidize the price of fuel to lower the the cost of workers and there's all these other things that the government could be doing but because of you know imperialist dominance and neoliberalism you have the you know arguably some of the most important workers the entire country doctors that who, who keep people alive like just being completely abandoned and then demonized. Well, so. and, and fuel of all resources to be abundant in. I mean, if you if you subsidized fuel and or just nationalized it and gave it to your citizens for free, the price of literally everything would come down. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. So well, solidarity with the with the Nigerian doctors. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're gonna stay with our international stories. We got a big international. Uh, 
bit of stories this week, although this one is back in the Imperial Corps. Uh, in the greater Toronto area, Canada, uh, one of the largest grocery chains is called Metro, and the workers there are unionized with a union called Unifor. This particular local for this chain is Local 414. On Saturday, July 29th, 3,700 workers went out on strike as part of this local. The strike has been described as the largest in the union's history and covers 27 different metro locations. Now, again, metro meaning the name of the store. It's not like the the general term of the area of of a city. But this is also in the greater Toronto area, which you could describe as the Toronto metro. (laughs) Yeah, so this is the the Toronto metro, which is the Toronto metro areas. Right. (laughs) Bigger grocery store. And as far as I'm aware, there is not one that is part of the Toronto metro system. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Well, originally, <laughs> well, originally the bargaining team at local four one four reached a TA with the company, which they actually endorsed. But the members didn't think it was a good enough deal and voted the TA down. Jason Sylvester, a Metro Meat Department manager, said that a dozen other strikers present were, quote, just trying to keep wages with inflation. We can't afford to buy the groceries that we put on shelves ourselves. We just want to keep up with the world, end quote. And I mean, I think that it's important to understand what he means by this, because I mean, the one of the major things to point out here is though Canada has gotten their inflation back uh, under like to about 2.9 percent, grocery costs themselves are up 9.1 percent. And Metro is one of those more expensive grocery stores in the first place. Uh, so is it, so it kind of like a Whole Foods? Yeah, I'm guessing so. I didn't, I couldn't tell if it was like really comparable to like one of those. Oh, we also have the health foods and stuff like that. Oh. I'm not entirely <laughs> yeah. sure if it's like quite on that that like uh, propaganda level as like a Whole Foods, but maybe it is similar. Um, it kind of looks like a Family Fair or a Meyer. I'm just googling it. That's Michigan for you. Nobody yeah. knows what those are, John. <laughs> uh, a Kroger. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. Giant yeah, Eagle, yeah. kind of. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. So a regular grocery chain. Yeah, yeah but, but like the the bigger one, the one that like is hegemonic in the area mm-hmm. of sorts. So 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 here that would probably be actually Market Basket, although maybe Stop and Shop. Anyway, ma- yeah, maybe like a Wegmans. You ever been to a Wegmans? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vula Stevens, a bookkeeper in charge of the Gould Street Metro's location and does invoices and payroll, said that after spending her paycheck on other necessities, quote, you would probably be able to come out with one bag of groceries from Metro. You spend $50 and you have half a bag full of what you need. You may as well go shop somewhere else. And I mean, this is a huge slap in the face to these workers who like literally make it so that people can buy groceries. They can't buy groceries on their own. Uh, we have uh, a worker, Coyle, who is a meat manager and on the job for over 10 years saying that he's among one of the highest paid employees. But he says, but, quote, I'm starving in debt at the moment. I can't afford my two-bedroom apartment. I live in Scarborough. I have an eight-year-old daughter. You know, it's not affordable. It's not. I can't afford to live in my own city. I can't afford to shop in my own store. It's kind of sad, end quote. And... 
Yeah, and, and and I see like you know as you pointed out here like with some of the 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 numbers that you'd pulled together. I mean, to exactly what he was saying, like uh, you you pointed out that like uh, a majority of the union members over twenty five hundred earn less than twenty dollars an hour, but. As of like late last year, you needed at least a wage of $26 an hour in order to afford rent for just a one-bedroom apartment in, in Ontario. And, and if that's actually the whole province, it's probably higher specifically in Toronto to live near the store that you work at. So, like, yeah, you got folks that are already, like, making $6 an hour less than they need to to afford, like, a studio, basically. Yeah, the cost of living is really just, uh, like, unbearable. Uh, I mean, as we've seen, because I think it's a, a lot to do similar, like, the United States with the rent issue, with rents being so high mm-hmm. that people can't w- live where they work. And, I mean, this is just another thing. And, again, like I said, the, the inflation in Canada for food itself is so high. And, you know, what are you going to do? You work at this place. Are you supposed to go to another grocery store? I mean, you literally are <laughs> right. there already. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure you have the same because a lot of this sounds very similar to the the conditions of workers at Kroger here in the United States, where it's like you have the people who work at the grocery store who are on food stamps because the company just does not pays absolute dog shit. Yeah. And and yeah, in addition to that, of course, you have the insulting thing you pointed out here, where these workers were paid hero pay two dollars an hour, basically the hazard pay for the pandemic. But of course, like basically every company that did that, that was very quickly yanked away once they got the PR for doing it. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the things that they highlighted because I believe that this is one of their uh, first negotiations since the pandemic hit, and so they're trying to get the you know recourse or to get some actual pay for this. Um, I mean, and also just to point out, in retaliation to the workers being forced to strike, Metro has cut off all of the workers' benefits. Now, luckily, there is the union that has the program for members to get some like basic benefits. So if people, I know it in the articles I was reading, it said that there was some people who had like upcoming surgeries, as we always see. Like we literally see this every single time a, a company pulls benefits that there was an important uh, you know thing for some workers. The union does have some benefits um, for people who are participating in strike duties. I'm guessing there's also exemptions for that for people who are like probably on medical leave. But I, I there was not really those specific details in the article or in the union's press release. Either way, it's it's tough out there, and I'm glad that these workers are fighting back for getting something better. Because if that TA wasn't good enough, even with the union endorsing it, you know they should fight back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if we've got any Canadian listeners, if you're in the Toronto area, you know, show uh show some support at your local picket lines. I'm sure I'm sure the workers would be very happy to see, you know, support from members of the community. Absolutely. Well, our next story brings us back to the United States. And if you were traveling here from a long ways away, we're going to talk about the workers who might actually be doing just that. So after threatening to strike earlier this year, this past week, the negotiating team for pilots at American Airlines reached a tentative agreement to bring their pay and benefits in line with the recent major deal signed by pilots at United. The American pilots organized with the American Pilots Association had threatened to strike when the airline proposed a deal with lower compensation than pilots at other airlines. So much for competitive pay. Following the strike threat, the company quickly upgraded the deal to attempt to avoid disruptions. United Pilots, organized in the Airline Pilots Association, 
ALPA as opposed to ALPA. Yeah, the ALPA instead of the APA. I mean, they love to throw an L or a W or something in there if it's not a unique acronym. But they reached a new TA a couple of weeks ago on July 15th, which set the industry standard with raises of 40% over four years. Pretty good raises. United Mm -hmm. Pilots also won more sick time, more paid time off, restrictions on involuntary assignments, and other benefit improvements. Following the announcement of the deal at United, American Pilots immediately demanded that their employer match the same standard. Wow. Could we ask for a clearer example of why it's really important to have industry-leading contracts like what Mm -hmm. we're seeing taking shape at UPS or like what we might see in the wake of negotiations at the big three automakers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. This is... There's a big part of the reason I wanted to talk about this because this is such a great example of what, you know, workers are able to do when they're organized, even without a strike. Because it's actually really difficult for airline pilots to actually strike because of the fact that they're regulated by the Railway Labor Act. However because of the nature of their work and the very hyper-specialized nature of it and the fact that there really just aren't all that many uh, airline pilots out there, it does give them a very large amount of leverage because it's really hard to find scab pilots. <laughs> uh, so, like, especially in the numbers that you need at a commercial airline. Like, if if you need it and you have, like, a, you know, a small, like, you have some mid-sized company that has a few planes, you might be able to do it, not for tens of thousands of pilots. And so, even without a strike, you know, these workers, by being united, by having a union, are able to exert big-time leverage, and thus, even though they're not all in the same union, they're still able to fight for pattern bargaining, which is, I think, really cool because like yeah the, the united pilots have their own union and the and the american pilots have their own union which is a little i do think it's a little odd that we don't just have like one you know like commercial airline pilots union but hey we got you know basically despite the fact that they're different unions they're still able to make demands of just like look yeah okay we liked most of this agreement but you just gave the, the pilots at united xyz extra thing and uh, you can't expect us to not not have that, so you, you better go ahead and put that in the deal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be in your interest. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and and so this is is it's great. Like you know, uh, Americans fifteen thousand pilots will now vote on the proposed deal, which is said to be worth a total of nine billion dollars in uh, their surplus labor reclaimed for the workers who produced it. And and you know this is really great because instead of having you know a race to the bottom between the three companies, which you would have if you had no unions at any of these workers, where you have the companies pitting against each other trying to lower their wages, by having these unions, you're able to unite and take themselves out of competition with each other, which is is, is so vital to all of this, despite the fact that that's become so rare in the United States. And so if American pilots vote to accept the deal, it will leave just pilots at Southwest as the one remaining major airline to not reach a new deal this year, which I would have to imagine we will likely shortly see as more or less a copy of this uh, contract. And, and, you know, I think it's just, this is one of those things, because we talk a lot about uh, on the show about strikes, because it's, you know, one of the biggest open manifestations of the the primary contradiction between workers and the ruling class. Also, the show is called Work Stoppage. Well, wait, well, yeah, well, I mean that, too. Wasn't, wasn't Southwest the airline that had, like, the catastrophic computer failure? 
yes. fairly recently. I, I'm going to be real with you. We might see a copycat thing there. We might also just see the end of Southwest Airlines at some point in the near future. <laughs> I don't like to say it, but I think it might happen. Well, I mean, you know, maybe just put the Southwest workers in charge of Southwest. They can't possibly fuck up like management did. Or just nationalize um, an airline. You would love to see it. Yeah, or all of them. Um, but yeah, so definitely we we you know really want to highlight what you can win even without a work stoppage by having you know so much unity mm-hmm. in your industry. So just wanted to shout that out. But you know, it is the show called Work Stoppage, so we should actually get back to talking about strikes. So. That's right. <laughs> uh, we've got another strike to cover this year. Not. Another huge one, but this time, you know, kind of the more typical size for most strikes in the United States. Uh, Last Saturday, July 29th, about 100 Teamster workers at Amcor in Des Moines, Iowa, began a strike aiming to reclaim some of the rising profits that the company managers have pocketed over the last year without really distributing any of that back down to the workers. So, uh the Amcor workers, uh, they, they produce packaging for snack products like Slim Jims, Capri Sun. They make all sorts of the like plastic packaging that you use for snacks. And the company brought in $14 billion last year, but the workers have seen no subsequent increase in wages despite – that's what it is – increase in rages, <laughs> not <laughs> increase in wages uh, – despite you know the, the huge cost of living crisis, which we've, of course, referenced in most of these. And Amcor, But again, Amcor is not some small firm that just happened to have a good quarter. They're one of the largest manufacturers of plastic packaging in the world, and they employ 44,000 workers across 43 countries. So this is a big company. Damn. And – Teamster local 238 business agent Andre Johnson said in a statement after the workers voted to reject the company's final offer, quote, Amcor has continually lowered standards for the past decade and members have finally stood up and are demanding respect. I can't can't help but wonder if this is from uh, the example from their Teamster uh, siblings. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's. I would assume it's pretty hard to to not have some of that energy rub off on you being in the same union. And, and unfortunately, Amcor, like most giant companies like this, rolled out kind of exactly the response you would expect. Uh, they, they've announced plans to try and continue to operate with scabs, uh, saying, quote, we therefore have activated a customer supply plan, which includes contingency staffing to enable uninterrupted plant operation, as well as dedicated customer care team. We therefore expect no disruption on supermarket shelves, end quote. Hmm. And my, so my my uh we expect no disruption on supermarket shelves t-shirt has people asking a lot of questions already answered by my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, and see, this is actually one of the things that I think is 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 a little interesting about this particular moment and particularly what Amcor produces. Because, you know, I would have to assume one of the outcomes of this, even with them trying to operate with scabs, is they're going to end up with a lower supply, which will result in their products being more expensive. There's going to be Slim Jims and Capri Suns bursting open all over (laughs) gas station shelves. (laughs) And yet somehow not degrading in any way because they're not made of anything organic. (laughs) No. (laughs) You You think Capri Sun is a tropical beverage? Wrong. It was invented by a German man named Rudolf Wilde. I know a lot about Capri Sun, actually. <laughs> I was going to say, damn, you got all the Capri Sun facts. I got the deep lore. <laughs> but so, 
I would still imagine that we're going to see some increase in price of the companies, you know, that, that purchase their products because they won't be able to produce them as efficiently with scab workers. However, I also think it's going to be kind of hard to notice because of the fact that every one of those companies is also massively profiteering right now, which is why we've seen such a surge in grocery prices. And so with this sort of a strike, relatively small bargaining unit, really huge company, but thankfully very big union, you know, this is the sort of thing where I think you're going to have to see a lot of community support and that's going to be really important. And that's why this weekend, actually just yesterday, workers in Des Moines held a solidarity rally uh, in, in the community in downtown Des Moines to build solidarity, inform the community about the strike and, and, and try and get, you know, more support so that they can stay out there for the long term. And so I know that like, despite the fact that, you know, this just happened yesterday, but despite the fact that they had like pouring rain in Des Moines, there were all sorts of folks that were join, joining them, including workers from other local unions, which is really dope because this is, you know, exactly what workers need to stay out there. And actually, as reported by uh, KCCI, local news there, uh, at the rally on Sunday, uh, Andre Johnson, again, the business uh, agent for Teamsters Local 238, said, quote, everybody's enthused, pumped, ready to go, and willing to stay on this line for as long as we need to, end quote. Hell yeah. That fucking rocks. Yeah, so solidarity with uh, the the Teamster workers in Des Moines. But speaking of the Teamsters, you know, Mm. uh, we've been – this is just a real quick story. This is actually, uh, you know, really just highlighting some really great reporting by Labor Notes because – of course, one of the big takeaways I think that everybody has really been looking at for from the UPS contract, you know, whichever way the vote goes, is that, you know, the tentpole wins that that exist in that contract are setting a standard and and the teamsters have been pretty open about the fact that they intend to to help leverage that to help organize workers at Amazon. And so Luis Feliz Leon, who, you know, one of the reporters for Labor Notes whose work we really tend to highlight because he's one of the better labor reporters out there. Uh, He actually spoke with Amazon workers around the country of their views on the UPS contract and what it could mean for them. And so you had, he got a lot, and mostly just like what I wanted to share from that is just some really great quotes from workers emphasizing, you know, how important these big wins can be for the broader labor movement. And so like part-time warehouse worker, uh, David Desiree Sherwood in JFK 8 in, in Staten Island said, quote, the $21 an hour starting wage is crazy strong compared to what we make at Amazon, end quote. And he pointed out that currently wages for warehouse workers at JFK 8 max out at $21.75, which is exactly why, you know, the ALU has been fighting for $30 there. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the that is a huge comparison of like 21 starting versus 21.75 ending. Mm-hmm. That's That's just... They're not comparable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's night and day. And and the they also talked to uh, Reverend Ryan Brown, who's the president of Independent uh, Union Cause in Raleigh, North Carolina. We, we we interviewed a cause organizer last year, and and Reverend Ryan also saw potential for positive impacts on organizing, saying, "quote It shows the power of solidarity, the threat of a strike, and collective bargaining. We hope that the Teamsters have the same success in organizing Amazon delivery stations." End quote. Hell yeah. Uh, he also spoke with uh, warehouse workers in Buford, Georgia, who had joined picketing Teamster Amazon drivers from Palmdale, California, when they brought the traveling picket to Atlanta. They said that the UPS tentative agreement has sparked a lot of interest in fighting for similar wins at Amazon. Quote, 
The wages they won have sparked a lot of conversation. I just got off a call talking with other workers from Amazonians United Atlanta about trying to catch this lightning in a bottle right now, end quote. <laughs> one, uh, one of the anonymous workers, uh, you know, trying to avoid that retaliation, uh, said to, to Labor Notes. Hell yeah. I mean, we also heard from Paul Blundell, a worker organizer with Amazonians United Philly, putting it very succinctly, saying, quote, It's all one fight here in the logistics industry. We have to be organizing together. We have to be raising standards together, or we risk losing by being disorganized. End quote. And I mean, we've been harping on it a lot, how much like setting the standard in an industry or even just in a sector of the economy can really make a difference, not just for your workplace or your union, but for all of the workers who work in that field and in all of the related fields. But it's it's kind of hard to overstate the importance of that, um, especially because like with the UPS contract, and again, it's not even like they still have yet to vote on it, but what, what did you call them? Tent, tent pillar? Uh, tent pole. Tent pole items that were included in there. It does seem like maybe we've crossed that threshold that the American bourgeoisie has been trying to keep us back from for such a long time. A uh, threshold in, in like having leverage as a working class in the U.S. labor market that we haven't seen in, I don't even know, close to 100 years? 100 years? Something like that? I mean, even just the number of people who are aware of what unions are. Mm-hmm is so much higher now this year. It's I mean, we've got a lot of work to do. we still got a lot of education we need to do, but compared now to five years ago. Yeah, big difference. Uh, an anecdote, I was uh, at the dentist the other day just talking, you know, I can't not talk about labor. And I mentioned, I was like, oh yeah, I, I just do some labor reporting. And the hygienist was like, oh yeah, you, I've actually even seen stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, you can't, like just the average person can't avoid seeing like strike-related news these days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so to, to close us out this week with our final story, uh, I dropped this in here as a personal uh, a piece of good news for my alma mater because the University of Maine has agreed to a card check election for their grad student union, which is in the process of formation. Way to Hell go, yeah. University is- of Maine. <laughs> All right. Yeah, because I, I mean, we've talked, you know, so much on the show about the union wave in in academia that's been growing, really, for the last couple of years as as one of the stronger themes of the ongoing labor upsurge, and so it was really cool to see this good news this week coming out of the school that I went to, the University of Maine, and, and grad student workers there have been organizing a union drive since March. Uh, they say they want a union to fight for better pay, benefits, and a say in how they're their jobs run. There's about a thousand graduate assistants, research assistants, and other grad student workers across the various campuses of the UMaine system, and they are fighting to join the UAW. And after just two months of organizing, they had already signed up a majority of grad workers. And so last Thursday, August 3rd, as reported by Maine Public Radio, the union took a big step forward in its fight for recognition when UMaine administrators agreed to a neutral third-party card check election. The school agreed not to fight the union effort and to accept the results of the election, no matter which way they go. And I think, you know, it sounds pretty obvious mm-hmm. <laughs> at this point that workers know when it only took two months to sign up a majority of them, they're pretty sh- confident about how it's going to go. And so... It's really great to see this, and the union issued a statement on social media saying, quote, grad workers have spoken, and the message is clear. We have an incredibly strong mandate to pursue collective bargaining and fight for a better deal for every grad worker in the UMaine system, end quote. 
It's and that rules. Yeah. And I'm so excited to to see the them, you know, win that card check election and and get grad student workers not just unionized at one campus, but across the entire UMaine system, which is super cool. Yeah. yeah, I think that that really rocks. And also, it's really good to see, like, union pressure be strong enough that people might be like, uh, maybe we should be neutral because we don't want to end up in the press like everyone else. I mean, uh, that's one of the biggest things that, like, if, if your level of union strength is high enough and the institution feels weak enough or threatened enough by what you're doing... There, more and more institutions will start to make the decision to just kind of roll over and be like, you know what? Fine. We'll just do card check. You know what? Fine. We'll be there to negotiate at 9 a.m. Whatever. Like, you know, and they'll just do it because like, you know, the more unions that demonstrate you can't just walk all over us, you can't just listen to Littler Mendelssohn and be like, oh, we're not even going to show up to the table. Oh, we're going to not even acknowledge your NLRB recognized election. You know, the the less institutions feel confident doing that, the more that they're going to feel like they have to just do what the workers are demanding of them. Yeah. So more incentive to keep fighting as hard as you can, because it's going to do good for everybody. Yeah. Absolutely. And what else is good for everybody? Oh, Memes. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> nice uh, nice little giggle pictures. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Welcome to the image description portion of the podcast. So uh, our, our first meme this week, going back to the well from one of our, our favorite uh, meme pages, Cats with Hard Hats. This is a very simple one, where it's just got the one cat in the hard hat with a can of Zoomies energy drink. It's got a real kitten look to it, like mm-hmm. orange kitten. sitting, And it's also <laughs> sitting like, like a get like a person would sit against the wall (laughs) yeah Yeah. this is a real new guy this is someone who's just been sent to get the board stretcher like last week (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly and then it's just captioned me sitting around in the grass because i have no idea what my job is or what i do (laughs) god i wish that were me (laughs) (laughs) i feel like though that is like the vibe at like any time you start a new job anywhere you're just like well, I do work here, but I don't know how any of this works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of people not understanding how things work, <laughs> uh, we have our next one is just a photo of an ad at a bus stop, and it says, "This ad can't be blocked." And then I don't know what the rest of it says because someone has blocked it with a large piece <laughs> of cardboard and some tape, which I love the conceit that it's like, well, people have ad blocker on their Google Chrome, but people can't install ad blocker on a bus stop, forgetting that like empty beer cases definitely still exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I've, there's a billboard around here that has a similar theme to this where it says, this ad can't be skipped. And then like the little button where it would be on a YouTube video mm-hmm. Is just is like an arrow pointing to the exit to get off of there. I'm just like, yeah. congratulations, you've made a really annoying billboard. Congratulations, yeah. you are now at the top of my list of things to use my thermite on. Yeah, I, I mean, I just don't understand why someone would think that 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 marketing tactic would work in the first place. Doesn't that just make people not like it? Like well, to be to, to like throw it in their face? Like, don't everybody loves to just be you know demeaned and have things thrown in their face, right? Well. It's an ad for advertisers. So they're saying, hey, 
we've got cut we've got you in our claws you could have people in your claws like this and throw horrible shit in their faces <laughs> and oh, that's very appealing to them it's kind of like that tweet i saw where it's like if you live near washington dc and you ride the subway you have the special treat of seeing ads that are specifically for four oh, yeah. pentagon acquisitions officers and nobody else yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, uh, speaking of tweets, the next one is a tweet. Uh, this one, it's, uh, like it says in asterisk, it says, Earth, boiling, roasting, toasting, <laughs> workers, striking, everything, expensive, government, and it has, uh, like, Dana Scully and uh, and what's the other character's name again? Fox Mulder. And Fox Mulder pointing at an alien. and but Specifically doing the, the soy jack face. Yes. <laughs> oh, right, right, yeah. And uh, I, I just think that this is very, very uh, emblematic. I, mean, we, I guess we're a couple weeks late to the alien uh you know rhetoric but also it wasn't worth bringing in and i saw this recently and i was like this one's fine (laughs) i mean here's the (laughs) thing about the alien story is that it is a distraction and the the best way to report on distractions is to not so yeah exactly so that's the thing put it in the in the meme review where the comedy happens where we are literally farting around (laughs) (laughs) yeah a hundred percent although our next meme is actually, uh, you know, I think a, a, a very good piece of propaganda. Oh, this true. is a old timey IWW meme uh, where, <laughs> yes, it's an old timey meme. It's it's not a propaganda poster. It's a meme. I am retconning that term <laughs> into the past. But uh, so this is an old poster from I would imagine around the turn of the twentieth century, where and it's just in huge at the top in in like red but with white font thief with an exclamation point and then it's a big picture of you know child workers in a textile mill like basically having to clamber all over these machines <laughs> while a uh, you know big fat stereotypical capitalist with the cigar and the top hat and the like pocket watch on a chain just stands there overseeing them and then below that is captioned the worst thief is he who steals the playtime of children wd haywood join which I guess it's so weird seeing WD Haywood instead of what I'm used to seeing big bill Haywood. Yeah. (laughs) And then join the IWW and help put the thieves to work. And just one more piece of detail on the image is that also at the capitalist's feet are giant bags of money. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately this propaganda has become extremely topical and necessary once again, uh, because you have even more child labor going on every day. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we don't often get the opportunity to do a real meta meme. On occasion, it's happened. I mean, longtime listeners will know it has popped up on occasion, but we have received a good one, folks. We we are here to to affirm this particular meme in the way that the meme affirms what we do, question <laughs> i think so <laughs> so yeah so this is from a, a page uh oh fuck i i had it flork of cows yeah flork of cows <laughs> they're great they're a web comic where it's drawn in ms paint yeah <laughs> and it's got these like kind of blob figures that basically just have a mouth and eyes the, and arms they're sock puppets sock puppets that's what they're supposed to be oh yeah. okay well, uh, here's the text on this one. Uh, this the first. It's kind of like a four-panel vertical. Yeah. 
Um, so the top panel is someone holding a piece of paper and, and talking and says, your meme is under review. We need to run it. Um, I need to run it by my favorite podcast first. And then there's three people with headphones on in the second panel, having the paper shown to them. And then in the third panel, it is those same ones pointing out saying, yes, that's us. Well, you have to T-pose. Oh, that's they're T-posing. <laughs> they're T-posing. <laughs> Oh, I was getting like a pointing vibe from it. But no, you're right. You're right. They're definitely <laughs> T-posing. And then it goes back to the person who who uh, was being talked to. It says, I have some exciting news for you. And they're smiling. <laughs> this one goes yeah, out I- to every single uh, Discord member who has ever had a meme they've shared put in the meme review. Yeah, it's, it's the first time I've seen a meme about the meme review. <laughs> but... It's very cool. I, I love that the, the idea of, you know, memes being reviewed is, is exists beyond just the listenership of our podcast. Yeah. Do we, do we know other shows that do meme reviews? I don't know. It would be cool to know if the person who does Flork of Cows is a listener, but I kind of doubt it. I feel like there's like, maybe it's uh maybe it's more of just like a general thing that some podcasts do where they're just yeah. like talk about memes and they're like, <laughs> oh, this meme rocks, this meme sucks. And so they're kind of reviewing memes, but nobody else. We have the uh, not patented because fuck intellectual property rights, uh, official meme review, the one and That's only. Right. <laughs> That's right. The only one that has ever existed. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I guess with that, if you'd like to support the meme review, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It is what allows us to look at memes and describe them in an audio format for you. Uh, And uh, again, we're entirely listener supported. So that means a lot to us. Jump in the discord and share some memes with us so that maybe it will end up in this review and we can say, I have some exciting news for you. Uh, (laughs) Write a review for us somewhere. Follow us in all the places. Links are at workstoppagepod.com. And listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. As always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.